might say, that's a long ways from Joshua chapter 11, where we were last week. And uh, it is um, over half the book farther away. Uh, And yet, uh, we'll be covering all of those chapters in between Joshua 11 through 22 in our message tonight. And no, I don't plan to keep you until 10 o'clock either. But we're really looking at chapter 23 as our scripture text uh, this evening. And uh, pray that uh, God will bless the reading of his word and its proclamation tonight as well. The breathed out word of God reads as such. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. You shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep, to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord God has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. But they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, and the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing upon that. Our dear Heavenly Father, in this day and age 
we hear people who are supposed to be, well, intelligent, who are supposed to be experts, and all they do is banter back and forth with lies and counter lies, flowing this way and flowing that way. One minute saying this and the next minute contradicting what they're saying and saying the exact opposite. Until, Lord, we don't know which way to go. But there is one way, and that is to look to you, to look to your cross, to look to your holy word, to understand it. We pray that we will do that today with Pastor Bob. Give him the words to speak, the clarity of mind, and the wisdom that he will need to convey to us your truth, your breathed out word. We ask these things not because we're worthy, Lord, but we ask them in your holy name. Amen. Amen. I want you to turn back to Joshua chapter 11. That's where we left off. Those of you who are visitors or guests with us tonight or were not here last week, uh, we didn't finish last week's uh, sermon. Uh, we got uh, cut short, not by anything unnatural, just the length of the pastor's sermon. So that's going to be where we start, back in chapter 11, then we'll take in chapters 12 through 22, and then we'll dive into chapter 23 tonight as well. I know there is a lot to chew on there, but uh, I think we have uh, the fortitude to do so. So we're going to look at three points if you have the sermon outline tonight. First of all, the battle continues, that's where we're at in Joshua 11. Then the tribal allotments, which are the sections that, uh, of 12 through 21. And then the tribal responsibilities, which is the passage that is before us tonight as well. If you go to Joshua chapter 11 and we begin at verse 10, we, we recall the fact that there was this large contingent that uh, Jabin, the king of Hazor, had arranged, had brought together at the waters of Merom in order to fight against Joshua and the Israelites. God comes to Joshua and comforts him and assures him, be bold, be strong, be courageous. Tomorrow at this very time, I'll give him into your hands. And that's what happened. Even though they had a mighty army, even though they had the advantage of iron chariots, they had horses, and they had the advantage of the plain of the waters of Merom. Still, Joshua came upon them in surprise, threw them into confusion, and they scattered into many different directions with the Israelites chasing them and hunting them down. That was the first part of chapter 11. Now, if you go to chapter 11, verse 10, we read the following. And Joshua turned back at that time. So they've tracked him down. They've chased as many of these soldiers as they can. And they've eliminated them. They've destroyed them. they put them to death. Now Joshua and the army turn back. And they turn back to the city of Hazor. And we read that they captured it. But the unique thing about this is that they burnt it. That's not what we read about all of these places. But they burn this one. Many of these towns, even though they destroy all the people, okay, the, the general tenor is what? They find the king, they hang the king, they destroy all the people. They are allowed to keep the plunder, in most of these cases for themselves, their own livestock and so on. 
But the cities, they leave. God's intent was, why tear down a city? You're going to need it to live in. And, and I've always thought, you know, that's, that's an interesting thing, that, that God allowed them to leave the cities, the buildings, the structures. But now they were occupied by his people. He allowed the, as it were, the pagans to build. They conquer. Now they get to dwell in them. They get to use them. Except for the city of Hazor. That, okay, if you go to verse 11, we have the same striking with the sword, all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. None left that breathe, and he burned Hazor with fire. Verse 13. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn. They didn't do that. Why Hazor? Because Hazor is representative of the rebellion against God. It is a reminder in the tearing down and burning of this city. The judgment upon God, of God, upon those who rebel. See, Jabin was the king of Hazor. Hazor is the, the town, the city, that, that is instrumental in seeking to draw all these nations together to bring to destruction. In some ways, it's a picture of the final judgment. It's the picture of the coming of Jesus Christ and the throwing of Satan into the pit of eternal fire. But also all those who are in opposition to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Hazer becomes then that representative of what God has done. But then the chapter continues. And they go on to various other localities, conquering them, taking them over. Until now, when we get to uh, chapter 11, verse 21, we read the following sentence. It says, and Joshua came at that time and cut off, oh, sorry, wrong verse, okay? It's back at 16. I jumped ahead. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowlands and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland. He has secured this territory. Remember last Sunday when we were dealing with the beginnings of chapter 11, I said, you know, Ai and Jericho are the, the cutting through the center of the land of Canaan. Then we had those chapters that dealt with the conquest of southern Canaan, the long day that God gave, the hailstones, those five kings that they put their feet on the necks of. So now they have the central and the southern but chapter 11 is now saying, after the defeat of these kings, and after Joshua goes throughout that northern section of land, conquering and destroying, they've secured the land of Canaan. It doesn't mean every enemy is destroyed. But they have secured the land. It means that they are, they are able now to move into it. It's okay for families for a father to take his wife and children and go and live and occupy. Why? Because the large threat of these major cities has been done away with. The inhabitants are killed. 
The cities now belong to the Israelites, and they are to go and occupy them. But before we get to the tribal allotment, there's one little added emphasis that God's word gives us. And that's where I was at when we were down at verse 21. And Joshua came at that time. So he secured it all. But there's somebody yet left to deal with. There's somebody who has not yet an enemy that they have not yet battled. And that is this group of people called the Anakim. Now, in short, the answer to who are the Anakim, they're giants. They're the giants from back in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. The giants that were reported by those spies. Oh, and the people there are of great size. And you perhaps recall a, a famous sermon by a certain pastor entitled Giants and Grasshoppers, right? Okay. You know, we seem like grasshoppers in their sight. They are so large. They are so tall. They're so big. They're so ferocious. Okay, we'll never be able to conquer them. Well, they've conquered all of Canaan, but it's almost as if Joshua, okay, has left these giants for last. And now they turn their attention upon them. What's going to happen? Before, when they encountered them as the spies, what did the people do? They said, we're not going into a land with giants. What happens this time? Well, let's read God's word. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Deber, from Nineveh. And from all the hill country of Judah and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. This great enemy that these people had feared that brought about a 40-year wandering. How are they dealt with? In one sweep of the pen. And Joshua destroyed them from the land. Oh, if God's people 40 years ago had only trusted in the Lord their God. Had only put their hope and faith in Him. Even the giants of the land would have fallen. How can you say that, Pastor Bob? Because that's what happened. That's what's going on in Joshua chapter 11. They put their hope and faith and trust in the Lord their God, and what happened? They went and destroyed them. It's not just, it, it's not just enemies of a small scale that God delivered them from. It is even these giants. But isn't it interesting? There's, there's that kind of, oh yeah, but only in Gaza and Gath and in Ashdod did some remain. Do you know why that's there? Because we have to explain Goliath. See, here's the consistency of God's word. Else we'd come to the story of David in 2 Samuel, or 1 Samuel, and we'll say, hey, where did giants come from? Joshua killed them all. Oh, no, no, no. God's word is very plain. He killed them and drove them out of the land of the people of Israel. But there were some left. 
You can do some research. Okay? This is where Goliath is from. You'll find him listed as from one of these three cities. So God left even the giant there. Why? Because later on in Israel's history, they're going to need to be taught again as they fear a giant. Just a single solitary giant. They were so afraid of just one giant, they would not go to war. And God has to take a little shepherd boy with a slingshot to remind them of his power and of his deliverance. But you see here too, these people had lived through. They were young children. They were under 20. But yet they know. They walked. They walked for 40 years. It was a pain. Why did that happen? Because your fathers did not trust that we could destroy these Anakim. Can't you just hear Joshua as the military commander the day they go after these guys? Now listen, 40 years ago, we were at this same place, in a sense. Are we going to attack or not? These are big people. Not going to kid you. This is a big enemy. But we know the Lord our God is with us. We're going to do it? And you can just hear the army of Israel, can't you? Yes, for Joshua and for the Lord. And they destroy these Anakim from the land. So that they don't have to deal with them in their own territory. The battle continues. But then we run into this section of tribal allotments. Okay? Each tribe is now going to receive a piece of land. They're going to receive a section of land, a section of this territory. They're going to take the whole and they're going to divide it into parts. Every tribe gets something. The Levites, being in a sense the lone exception are told that their inheritance is going to be the Lord because they're the ones who stood firm with the Lord and did the Lord's work at the golden calf. But it's not that they're without land. They receive 48 cities scattered throughout Israel and then they're given land outside the city wall for a stretch Okay? That becomes their farmland. That becomes their pasture land. So that it's not like they get a territory. It's not like they get a state, as it were. But they get cities that others can live in, but are Levitical cities. And then the land surrounding those. But all the other tribes receive a piece of land. Each receives. The second thing under that allotment is that each piece is unique. God treats each tribe differently. God recognizes distinctions. God creates distinctions. And God doesn't say, no, I cut everything out of the same mold. Let's make everything exactly the same. Now, I couldn't help but laugh a little bit this week when uh, the, the, that committee that's responsible for new uh, congressional districts let out their map, and you look at that thing and you go, okay, what were you people thinking, right? 
You, you got one that starts in, I think it is in Montcalm County. It goes off towards the northeast, then heads up towards the northwest and takes in the whole upper peninsula. Like it makes a lot of sense that the guy who represents Greenville, Michigan is also going to be representing Marquette, Michigan, right? But I wasn't on the committee, okay? I did fill out the paperwork, but wasn't asked to serve, okay? Because I thought that'd be kind of interesting to do, at least make the lines straight. But as I looked at that, I thought, these are all over the place. But it reminded me of the fact that's exactly what God did here, though. He took each tribe and gave them their own particular piece of land. Each piece with its own particular resources. Each piece with its own particular issues and enemies. But each piece is assigned to each tribe because that tribe was particularly designed for that piece of land. That's why when the tribe of Dan leaves their tribal allotment, right, in the book of Judges, this is such an affront to God. They, they didn't like what God had given to them. So this, this tribal allotment teaches us something about the way in which God orders the world. Each received, each unique, each determined by the sovereignty of God. Go back with me to Numbers chapter 26. Book of Numbers chapter 26. Find verse 52. Now understand, Numbers 26, we're still back in the desert. Moses is still alive. We haven't even crossed into the land of Canaan yet. But here's the instruction. Okay, this is the instructions that the Lord gives. Verse 52, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Among these the land shall be divided for an inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list. But the land shall be divided by lot. According to the names of the tribes of their fathers, they shall inherit. Their inheritance shall be divided according to the lot by the larger and the smaller. By lot. Why that emphasis? It's not a vote of the people. Hey, who gets what section? Let's have a vote. Who wants that upper northern section up there? Let's vote. Right? It wasn't by committee was by lot, by the casting of some stones of some sort. I often say in Bible study, I think that they use the Urim and Thummim for this. But it's by lot. What does that mean? Oh, it's by chance. No. God's word tells us okay, that, that men hold it okay, in their lap, the lot, but the casting of it that which turns up is by the Lord. Oh, Father, you are sovereign in all the affairs of man. God wanted to make sure that this was not going to erupt into some fight. That they were going to be able to say, oh, Moses assigned this, or Joshua assigned it, or the committee assigned it this. We don't like it. No, it was by the Lord. 
the Lord gave them their particular tribal allotment. And I can't help but think, okay, that God is taking a nation that was one and now dividing it into various parts because in its various parts, it would be stronger than it would be as one. We're studying church history this year. I can't help but apply this and think, yeah, God could have left the church as just one church. But I think God understood that various denominations does not make the church unstrong or weak. It makes the church stronger. We are each given our own particular plot, as it were, of ground. And in that particular plot, God has assigned us this particular section. It is by the Lord's doing. It's not by happenstance. It's not by chance. It's not by luck. Oh, Father, you are sovereign in all affairs of man. But now we come to chapter 23, because we learn God's purpose in doing this. See, why did God divide them up? I said, okay, it's because of God is increasing their strength. And chapter 23 is verifying that by Joshua's speech now as an old man saying to them, Get about the business of stop living together and get to your tribal allotment. See, their natural tendency was to hold together. Their natural tendency was to stay together. And God is saying, I don't want that. I gave you this land and I gave you allotments. Go to those allotments and possess the allotment, chapter 23, okay, the passage we read, that's what comes up in verse 5. The Lord your God will push them back before your sight and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. See, they're resisting that. Okay, They've won it. But they're not real motivated to go to it. Naphtali isn't real motivated to go to its territorial allotment. Issachar isn't. Benjamin isn't. They, they want to hunker down together. And God says, no, no. You go to your allotment and you possess that allotment. You take charge of that allotment. Now part of that possessing is to drive out the remaining enemies that are there. It was each tribe's responsibility. Let's take Issachar, for example. That's in the far north of the land of Canaan. It was the responsibility of the tribe of Issachar to move from Gilgal, to go to that tribal allotment, to possess the land, and then to finish the work of driving out the enemies that are there. 
Now, the people who lived in large cities, they're already gone. Right? The, the big enemies are already taken care of. They're already destroyed. But he's saying to them, you, know, you might have a, a cluster of people living in a, in a little valley. Go get rid of them. You, you might have a, a little village over here. Go get rid of them. You don't need to be one great army to do that. Your tribal army is strong enough to go and possess the land and to drive out the enemies. Why? Because the Lord your God is with you. Look at, look at how Joshua argues this. One of you, one of you is able to deal with a thousand. Why do we need all 600 soldiers then? Your tribe can possess the land. Now what do we know from history? What do we know from the sacred record? What do we know from God's word? Did they do it? Read Judges chapter 1. No, pathetically they did not. They never did what God commanded them to do. They never drove out the particular enemies that God had left. See, we got to understand this. God left enemies for Issachar to deal with. But Issachar has the strength and the resources and the ability to deal with those enemies, but they refuse to do so. And the same thing of Naphtali, the same thing of Simeon, the same thing of Reuben and Gad and Asher, the same thing of Judah, the same thing of Dan, the same thing of Ephraim, the same thing of each one of those tribes. They refused to do what God commanded them to do. Possess the land, drive out those enemies. Secondly, verse 7. You go to your territory... You possess the land, drive out the enemies. Secondly, don't mix with the people. Don't mix with them. It's interesting because at first I thought that the mix probably was intermarriage. Well, that's part of it because intermarriage is mentioned just a few verses down from that. Mixing certainly does involve intermarriage. God is saying, look, you are my people. You are my set-apart people. You are my holy people. Don't mix with the unholy. Therefore, Paul gives us the warning in Corinthians, right? Okay? That, that a Christian is never supposed to marry an unbeliever. We're not supposed to mix. We're not supposed to do that. That's an affront to the Lord our God. It's a sin in the face of God. Do not mix. But do not mix means more than just that, doesn't it? How else could you mix with an unbeliever? Business, commerce. Do not mix. See, that, that word that we came across this morning, right? Holy is the Lord. And anything that belongs to the Lord is then holy as also. 
Do the people of Israel belong to the Lord? Yes, they are a holy people. We are a holy people. 2 Peter chapter 2, right? We are a chosen people. We are a holy people. We're called out of darkness into his marvelous light. They were not to mix with these unbelieving folks. Business, commerce, marriage, whatever it was. There, there wasn't supposed to be any joint ventures. Hey, let's have a peace pact together and let's go after so-and-so and destroy them. No, don't do that. Compromising with the world. Compromising with the ungodly. Well, why would they do that? <laughs> there was a lot of economic gain in that. And it's a lot easier. It's a lot less work. Who wants to fight when you can enjoy a party? Let's party and not fight. Yeah, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with it? God said, do not mix. Did they mix? <laughs> we know the answer to that, don't we? Not only did they not destroy them, not only did they never possess fully the land that God gave to them, but they also mixed. They intermarried. They got in business dealings with these folks. They took on the gods of these people. They worshipped in the groves. They sacrificed to false gods. They mixed economically, they mixed socially, and they mixed religiously. And God's judgment is going to come upon them. Third thing Joshua reminds them of. Keep the covenant. Keep the covenant. Let me ask you a question. It's a no-brainer question, so it's not hard. Is it easier to sin when you're gathered together with God's people in church or when you're alone? Pretty easy question, right? And with God's people, there's witnesses. There's people watching. I'm going to behave. When I'm alone, nobody's watching. Nobody's looking. Joshua says to them, when you go to these possessions, you keep the covenant. Why? Because they're going to be out there all alone. Simeon and his wife and their children are going to be in some little valley somewhere and there aren't going to be a lot of people watching what they do. Who are they worshiping? Who are they following? Is Simeon bringing in his tithe? Nobody will ever know. He's all off on his own. Simeon got his own little idol out there? Nobody will ever know. It's kind of hidden from sight. So when you go and possess these places, don't mix with the people that are there. You keep covenant. What did it boil down to? It boils down to an interesting phrase that Joshua gives there. Love the Lord your God. You go. 
to your own individual possession now. Your own plot of ground. You keep covenant there. You love the Lord your God. And if you hold true to him, he will bless you. And bless you and bless you and bless you. But if you turn from him, because this is a covenant arrangement, if you turn from him, if you seek other gods, then the judgment of God will come upon you as well. Now, there's an interesting flow going on in the book of Joshua. All of these chapters, 1 through through 11, deal with Israel as a whole nation. They're all together. Chapters 12 through 23 are God dealing with his people in their tribal allotments. Chapter 24, where the Lord brings us next week, is God deals with each one of our hearts. Each one of our hearts. The way I'd look at it is this way. Part of Joshua is reminding us what the task of the church of Jesus Christ as a whole is. Part of the book of Joshua deals with what is our task, our particular task, as Little Farms Chapel, as a part of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. But I think the strongest, most powerful part of the book of Joshua is contained in one chapter. Where Joshua comes and looks at each one of us in the face and says, Who are you going to serve? Who are you? Not who are you. Not who are you. But he's looking us in the face. He's looking us right in the eyes. And he says, who are you going to serve? But that's for next Lord's Day. At this point in time, we simply look at it and we say, Oh, Father, you are sovereign in all the affairs of man. There's a lot of technical stuff going on in these chapters that we haven't read out of the book of Joshua. And yet it's all directed by the hand of God because it was God's desire that each one of these tribes would go and possess their land. Be his holy people. Serve him. Let's pray that we, that we, as Little Farms Chapel, possess the land that God has given to us. We have a territory. We have an area. God's placed us in a particular locality. To what? To fill this with the glory of God. Father, thank you for your word, for its reminder tonight. It challenges us in different ways. It gets us to think about your word and its truth and what was going on there with Joshua and the people of Israel. It challenges us, Father, in the day and age in which we live because it's so easy for us, just like it was for them, to compromise, to go along with the world, to go along with what the world thinks, rather than to stand firm on the truths of your word. Father, open our eyes to see your glory. Open our hearts to experience your love. Open our minds to the glories of your truth and open our lives 
to be the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit so that we too might be your holy people living in this day and in this age. Help us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. Not because we're going to win our salvation, but because you've given us our salvation by grace. In Christ's name we pray, and God's people say, Amen.